You may know Angela Kenneke from Kelloland News. What you might not know is that Angela lost her daughter Emily to fentanyl poisoning in 2018. Now Angela and her family run Emily's Hope to help others avoid such a tragedy. Let's talk about it on Mandate. And welcome, my friends, to another episode of Mandate. My name is Joe Obermuller. I'm here, as always, with my very good friend, Mr. Ben Krush. Oh, what's up, everybody? Good to be with you again, Ben. Great to be with you, Joe Obermuller. Hey, give us an update on the new gig. How's it going? New gig is going well, my friend. I am meeting with some extravagant, uh, important, uh, lovely people in Sioux Falls. And the best thing about those people uh, is you can see them... Uh, in news stories and talk about all their successes and you know some of them write books but what you don't hear about is how charitable a lot of people are in Sioux Falls this is a community of of contribution of caring for one another Uh, even though we're growing at rapid paces uh, a lot of these business owners or lawyers doctors who are people of success um, uh, or just regular people like you and I uh, that want to give through uh, our foundation back to all the awesome, awesome stuff that's going around in Sioux Falls. So uh, I, again, much like Mandate, Joe, uh, I am selfish, uh, selfishly admonished in this pursuit of happiness. That's amazing. Uh, so glad for you. Glad it's going well. And speaking of people who care about our community, super excited to have Angela Kenneke on the program today. Uh, many of you may know Angela from her work at Kelloland News. Angela, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. How long have you been at Kelloland? First question out of the bat, 32 years. That's amazing. Wow. Speaking, I mean, that's a really long time. I started when I was 10. No, just kidding. No, no, you're not kidding. Yeah, you're not kidding. (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. And so you, you, you must just have so much insight and knowledge about Sioux Falls and our community. I don't even know where to begin to tap into that. Well, you know, I, I started, when I started, I started with Steve Hemmingson and Doug Lund, who had been there like 30 years before me. So I kind of absorbed everything that I could from them and what they knew. You know, they were the big news and everybody watched Kello back then. There were only a few choices, you know, of what to watch. And I do feel like I now have that. I didn't grow up here in Sioux Falls, but I've been here for 32 years. So I it feel it's my home and I know a lot of people in this town and in this state and and I feel really fortunate about that I I am it's it's weird because now we have all these you know kids starting out in their careers as reporters and they come to me for historical perspective so I guess I have that now well that's amazing it it, it is amazing and I I Andrew what I highly respect about you uh, and following your career is your ability one to storytell I mean, that's really your job, is, especially you. now, is, is you, you tell stories, and that is a gift. But more importantly, to find the truth. Uh, and you depict that in a way that I don't know, I hope Sioux Falls respects it, uh, and I, I think that they do, but I don't, I want people to hear this podcast and understand the respect that Joe and I have for, for you. Well, thank you so much. I do like to call myself a truth teller, and I think it's really important uh, that we in the media are the watchdog of especially government, right? So government, big business, industry, whatever, I think that that is our responsibility and our role to let you, the taxpayer, know 
what's happening and what you're paying for and what's going on. And, and we don't want to see things covered up. We, we want them to sh- shine some light on them. So have, how long have you been doing investigative journalism? Well, I've been doing investigative journalism this entire time, although I didn't always have as much time to devote to it as I have now. And it is time consuming uh, to dig up some of this stuff and to go through these stories. And you also have to be very thorough because there's always the threat of a lawsuit, right? So we have to really dot all of our, dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's. Uh, but I have been doing investigative reports this entire time, and I also uh, focused on business reports for a number of years, and, and of course, anchored the shows. Wow. It's, we could spend this whole episode talking about that, talking right. about your work, <laughs> which is, is fascinating and interesting, uh, but that's not the primary reason that you're here. The primary reason that you're here is uh, is a, a tragedy that your family endured just a few years ago in 2018 uh, with your daughter, Emily. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Emily was the oldest of my four children, and she was just an amazing kid. I always talk about how gifted she was, an artist, intellectually gifted. She was beautiful. She was athletically gifted. She was a gymnast, and she ran track. She did hurdles. She had done cheerleading. And she went to private school, and you kind of think you're protecting your kids, right, by sort of giving them all of the advantages that we parents want to give them. And I couldn't protect her from, I guess, the drug culture out there. And she started using, at a fairly young age, marijuana and some pills. And and it also was partly the company that she kept. You know, I, I know you guys have younger kids. Uh, you're the center of their world up until a certain point, and then their peers become the center of their world. And it's really hard to control that if they don't necessarily pick maybe the people you would pick for them to hang around. And it just it just went, it really did not go well. I spent a lot of years, you know, taking her, dragging her to counselor after counselor, trying anything I could to stop what I considered out of control behavior like running away in the middle of the night and that kind of thing. Uh, I tried tough love, all kinds of things. I I got a course on uh, parenting oppositionally defiant children because she, at that point, she hadn't been, but at that point she was really oppositional as an older teen. And just about anything I did didn't really seem to help. Um, I, I liken it to you're watching a train coming at you and you're trying to stop this freight train and you're waving your hands and it just runs you over. Mm. And really that was what the experience has been like for me. We knew there was, we knew it wasn't getting any better and she had, and actually our relationship had gotten a lot better because I realized the tough love wasn't working. And I started approaching everything, every word I said to her from a, a, love like how would I want to be talked to if I were her and just always came at her with let me help you or here's this or how can I do this um that kind of thing and we just knew she wasn't healthy we knew something was wrong she never did admit to us what she was doing other than she had gotten some prescription drugs from um, a psychiatrist and we knew about the marijuana she was really into that marijuana culture and had been for quite some time and we were planning an intervention so our entire family met with an interventionist here in Sioux Falls and I had her checked in at the time Um, the only treatment center here in town was Keystone inpatient treatment and I had her checked in there and 
we were planning this intervention and on the night we were all going to sit down and write our letters three days before the intervention she died Mm. and I was could never have been prepared for that I on the day that she died, I was working on a story on overdose and Good Samaritan laws. And I had done quite a few different opioid uh, type stories and fentanyl type stories. I just didn't think she would ever do something like that. And she had hid it from us very well. I mean, I just thought, you know, here she's taking Klonopin or Xanax and smoking weed. And this is why she's acting so strange. Uh, when I was on CBS this morning, uh, Gail King asked me, how could you not know? that your daughter mm-hmm. was doing heroin. You know, how could you not know that? And I just thought, boy, I she was an adult living in an apartment outside of my house, you know, and I knew there was an issue. I knew she was doing some things, but I did not know that she was using heroin. And the heroin that she used that day was laced with fentanyl. Now, I don't know what your audience knows about fentanyl, but it's a synthetic opioid. And all it takes is what's equivalent to four grains of salt to kill someone. So dealers put this in every drug out there. Now, oftentimes when I speak to groups, I hold out a salt shaker and I say, just try putting out just four grains. You can't do it. That's right. I mean, that's how small it is. And it's in everything. It's in, they're putting, the dealers are putting it in cocaine. They're putting it in meth. They're putting it in heroin, of course. And and they're lacing illegal weed with it as well. So it's really dangerous for our kids out there right now if they're using or experimenting and I try to get that message across to kids when I speak to groups of in schools because they don't want to be snitches right they don't want to tell Mm. and I say you have to talk to a trusted adult because the fentanyl is in everything and the dealers don't care and I've asked the drug enforcement agency why you know why are dealers doing this and they're like well they don't care and the line's out the door so the line for this stuff is out the door they kill a few customers they don't care. Fentanyl hooks you. You know, you're, you're more likely to be. So that's return, why. Return customer. Right. Right. Um, mm. So so that's what happened. And so and I, I miss her every day. Yeah, I bet. Uh, before you go, Joe, I, I, I've got a question. Yeah. So this happens. It's a normal day, right? So what I'm assuming is happening, because I hope our audience can hear this is a this is a mom. OK, this is not. Kello, Angela, this is a mother. So if if this happens to one of my kids, I have every second up to that moment, that was my life. And now I have every second after that. My life is now defined by that moment. When you get a call like that, what's happening in your family? What's happening in your, your mind? What's, how do you deal with that phone call? So I got a call saying Emily had OD'd and that they thought that she was dead. And I got in my car and drove to her apartment. Um, I drove the wrong way to start. Like, it doesn't even register in your brain. But you're right about the defining moment. Because after she died, after I went through this traumatic experience, and I still have flashbacks every day to the day of her death and being there and being there with her on the floor, mm. you know, and watch, well, watching the emergency workers trying to revive her, and they gave her two doses of Narcan, they were too late. So she had been alone in a room, and um, it was just, it was too late. We don't know how long she had been dead, but by the time the emergency workers got there, she was. So, you know, I relive that day 
every day of my life I have flashbacks to that. But the defining moment, at first I was really angry because that this is not how my life was supposed to go, right? I, I bent over backwards as a mom, you know, to try. A lot of people think, oh, you worked. You worked, you know, so you weren't even there. Well, that there's nothing further from the truth. I worked nights, so I was with my kids all day. And I had 18-hour days myself, but that was okay. I got to, you know, help. I had to support them. And I was a single parent for a while, mm. for six years, actually. Um, I had to support them. I had to take care of them. And I did all that. And and my kids, this was not supposed to be my life or my children's lives, you know. And it affected her siblings as well, you know, very deeply. And But you can't undo what is, right? So acceptance is where you have to get to. Now, I'm not saying you accept it immediately. Far from it. But as time goes by and as you process it and you find ways to cope, acceptance is the key. I think to anything in life, any difficult thing. Losing a child, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I do believe it's probably the worst thing that can happen to anybody. Worse than losing a spouse or a parent. I mean, they're all bad, right? So it's loss is loss, but it definitely isn't supposed to happen in that order. And so you have to come to that point where you accept it and you incorporate it into your life or you couldn't go on. You know, you couldn't, you, you just stop living. And I've seen people make that choice and it is a choice. So I'm part of this club now Mm -hmm. of lots of parents who've lost children. And there are a lot of us because 223 people die every single day of overdose, mostly young people. And I am not alone in this, and I know that. And in some ways, that's comforting. And in some ways, you know, it doesn't really matter because it still happened to me and to my daughter and to my family. But I've seen people, you know, just not want to go on and not be able to go on. And I don't fault them for that. I just know that it is a choice. And I always say there are when I speak to groups, I use this analogy, and I didn't make this up. I can't remember why I heard it, but um, there are two types of people in this world, and we all get pushed down into the pit. And your pit may have different flavor or color than my pit. We all get pushed down into that pit. And there are bouncers and there are splatterers. So the splatterers just splatter at the bottom of the pit, and they never come back up out of it. And then there are bouncers, people who bounce back up out of that pit. And I always think think about that in my mind and I think I want to be a bouncer Mm. I want to be able to emerge from this pit of grief and loss and all the lost potential you know when you lose a child it's like there won't be that wedding there won't be the grandchildren Um, it's just like I always think between a mother and a child there's that invisible umbilical cord right and even though the um, actual umbilical cord is cut at birth there's still that visible one that connects us and I believe and this is also what helps me somewhat is that cord has never been cut and it never will be cut Mm -hmm. so my love for my daughter carries on and I believe her love for me is still here within me of course so I think if I can push the rewind button for a second I I think that question Gail King asked you is is one that was probably on the minds of people that are listening and, and for me, it's, it's true. And we talked a little bit about this before we hit record. I, I have a tendency to believe that my kids are too young to start learning about these kinds of things when, in, when probably in reality, they're not. And so when you say you started to notice things in your daughter, what age are you talking about? When did, when did this begin? 
Well, it really began at age 14. So at age 14, I saw a, a big personality shift. Uh, it's almost like uh, narcissism. It's almost like she really all of a sudden got really difficult. And she'd been such an awesome kid. I mean, I just I can't even tell you like we were we were so close. Um, and she was also my uh, she's very attached to me. So she's my Velcro kid. You know, and mm -hmm. so when this started, it was it was just alarming. And I it was my first kid. It's my oldest child. I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I was a good researcher because of my job in journalism. So I did um, lot read lots of stuff and look up lots of stuff online. And um, but the 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 behavior and the personality change started about that age. And I really think that addiction. Um, there are lots of factors that go into addiction, uh, certainly genetic factors, and certainly we all have those genetic factors on different sides of our families. We may not have them in our immediate families, but we all have, you know, the potential for addiction in our genes. And so I think there's the genetic factors, and then there's the environmental factors, you know, who they're hanging around, what they're exposed to, what they're able to get, um, and, you know, some personality factors. I mean, she was a risk taker. She got up on a balance beam in front of thousand people, you know, and did flips. So she wasn't afraid to take risks. So you have all of those factors. And it did really start at age 14. And that's when I talked about, you know, bringing her to counselors and trying to stop behavior and even invoking, you know, the juvenile system at one point, because I was like, this has to stop, you know. Uh, but as she got older, you know, the changes I saw were physical changes in appearance and also failing to show up. Well, she, she was so sweet, you know, and she'd say, oh, I'm going to be there for my brothers, whatever. And then she wouldn't show up. And then she'd have all kinds of excuses, you know, and then I'd see her a couple days later. Um, things like that, you know, not wanting to go on a family vacation, you know, just, I mean, because they can't. I mean, when you're actively using and you don't, and addicts are really good at hiding you know, they're not, they're not, first of all, she was my kid. And I did have a really frank conversation with her months before she died about how, hey, I don't, I'm old and I don't want to disappoint my parents. You know, I don't want my parents to think less of me. I said, I will not think less of you. You could never, there's nothing you could do, you know, that would ever make me stop loving you. And I thought she heard me at the time. You know, I offered her help then. I said, I just think you need help. Because that, at that point, she told me she'd gotten off of Xanax. You know, so I did know that. Um, no, no, I, my friends are helping me and I don't need help. And how do you force an adult? I mean, there are measures you can take. We were actually looking, if the intervention didn't work, we were looking at involuntary commitment, you know, but we didn't get a chance to mm -hmm. do that. So when you're noticing these behaviors at home and this shift in personality, was there any time where uh, anyone in other spheres of your world were noticing or partnering with you, like school or other you know, how, how is that relationship? Well, I would usually invoke the school's help, actually, and, and tell them what was going on and tell them I needed help. And, and they and the private school she went to, they were, it was um, O'Gorman here in Sioux Falls. They were really great. In, in fact, they went, they bent over backwards to do what they could to try to help in any way they could. They're, of course, they're limited mm -hmm. in some capacity as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, other people knew. It's just, it was so hard to find help. And that is one thing that Avera is doing now with its addiction care center is it's um, having navigators. Because it's so hard to know like where to turn, what's the right thing? How do you do this? How do you, how do you help this person that you love? Whether that be a child or a spouse or a or your parent or somebody. Um, so they have navigators, they're training interventionists, things like that. Because part of the disease of addiction is denial. 
And, and the brain tells you, you know, it's the most, the substance you're using is the most important thing. And nobody is going to take that away from you if you're using. And anybody who threatens to, well, they're a threat. And that, that's why addicts will be angry and blow up and st- storm out and disappear for a while. You know, but we have to figure out ways to help families better navigate that whole thing because it's so hard. And you can't control. That is the one thing. I think mothers, less than dads, get all of the credit or all of the blame, right? Right. So when my kid is excelling and she's a state champion gymnast, hey, look at me. I'm the mom. I did great. When my kid is using drugs, I'm the mom. I'm a failure, mm-hmm. right? And our, that's in our society. And I'm sorry, dads get off easy. They don't You're get right. any of the, well, they maybe get the credit if you got a really good athlete. Oh, his dad, <laughs> you know, but you know, you don't, you don't get the blame. I don't think as much anyway. So I, I have to ask Angela, so you, so this happens, you have other kids uh, that obviously loved Emily, love you. You still have to be a mom. Like life doesn't stop. Right. You, you have a job. Uh, you're providing, where do you go? How how do you do that day in and day out? Try to be whatever it may be, right? It could be the word strong, but it could be the word weak, right? Uh, how do you manage day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute with your, your family? Well, a lot of people say, you know, oh, you're so strong or I could never do what you do. And I say, well, you don't know that until you're in the situation. And I don't see it as strength. I just see it as doing what I have to do. So you're right. I have other children. Emily has a brother, a stepbrother and a sister, and they're all 19, 20 and 21. <laughs> so um, and they all and they were younger at the time, obviously, in high school. And they all need me. And even though they're adults and they don't really need me, you know, they, st- you, you know, you still need your mom around, right? Occasionally mm-hmm. for advice or something. And that really, especially the first couple of years, really, and my husband, of course, um, really kept me going. You know, I've got other people that love me and I love and need me. And even though this is a catechismic loss, like there's like a hole in your heart that mm. is gi- gigantic, you know, you, it, it doesn't, it kind of scabs over a little bit, but it doesn't really ever close there's still, I always think of the heart as like a pie, right? And so there's pieces of that pie that a mom slices up, right? Among her chil- her husband and her children and mm-hmm. her friends and her family. And so there are still, there's still those pieces of my heart that are with the people I love here. And so that keeps me going. Um, that's helpful. But every day I cry for sure. And yeah. that's okay. You know, I let myself yes. cry because... Memories will come back. I'll, every day I see something that reminds me of my daughter or I'm talking about her. The other thing that's really helped me is starting the charity. Yeah. And it all came about in such a, I would say, divine way, uh, if you believe in those kinds of things. We do on this podcast. Okay. Um, that I can't, I, I just was led to it. And I do really feel like it's a calling. But helping me helps other people. You know, when when Emily's Hope, which is the charity that we started, helps Someone go through treatment. We've helped a hundred people go through treatment. And those people come back and they say, thank you for helping me. It's changed my life. I'm a better father. I'm a better grandmother. I'm a better this or that. I mean, that helps me tremendously. And my daughter's death seems so unnecessary, right? If there hadn't been fentanyl in the drug of her choice, then she would still, she, I have a kid with a problem on my hands, but I'd still have my kid. Mm-hmm. 
if she didn't have to die, there was no reason. So it's, it's senseless. So I'm trying to make sense of a senseless death. And I do that through the work that we do at Emily's Hope. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because speaking of divine choreography, your, your position in, in Sioux Falls and what you've, what you've done for a living actually connects you to a lot of people, which has, my guess is, helped get the word out about this work that you're doing. And so you have, I mean, Emily's Hope is, is not just a local thing, right? I mean, this is a national and, and even international organization that people are connected to. So tell us about the evolution of that. At what point in the grieving process or, or that the after did, uh, did this idea come and, and your experience of kind of watching it grow and develop and, and become what it is now? Well, my daughter was a very prolific artist, and there are pieces of her work out there that I don't have, but she left us with 29 paintings and several pieces of pottery. So immediately after she died, I felt like that's what I have left of her, is her artwork. And she did surrealism, kind of like Dolly. You know, she, she Actually, she'd never heard of Dolly, and one time we walked through Minneapolis Institute of the Arts, and, and, they had, and it's like, she's like, that looks like my art. <laughs> Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. Awesome. <laughs> that's your style. Um, but so she's very talented. Uh, and I immediately started preserving her artwork, getting photographs taken of it. And a friend of mine who's in the construction business was helping with the Avera Addiction Care Center. And he was like, well, maybe there's a way to incorporate her art over there. And I thought, oh, I like that idea. And so I called some folks I know over at Avera. And they said, oh, we're actually having the groundbreaking for the addiction center in two days. Would you like to come to it? And I'm like, sure. So I was still off work because this is just uh, like a two months after she died. And I had I took three months off because I, I didn't even know if I'd even be able to go back on television again, quite frankly. Sure. I, I was having pa- I, I'd never really had panic attacks before. And I'd go into Walmart and have a panic attack, you know, after she it was just everything was like the, turn the apple cart upside down. Right. It's like your whole world is just you don't even know where your footing is anymore. But I go to this groundbreaking. And I start talking to these folks at Avera, and I'm like, well, maybe we could raise some money, you know, to help people get treatment. And they're like, well, that's a great idea. We'll set up a fund for you. And that is just how it started. So they set up a fund there called the Emily's Hope Fund. And uh, I, th- it was like everything just happened. And I came back to work. Well, I called when I, when I was coming back to work, I called up my boss, our news director, Beth Jensen, and I said, I- I'm ready to come back. And there's two things I'd like to do. I'd like to do um, a story about what happened. And I'd like to do an opioid special about what's going on in our community. And she said, well, we were hoping you'd say that. We, she said, we'd never ask you. We'd never force you to do that. But we were really hoping you'd want to do that. It was really odd because I was allowed editorial control over my own story, which is really weird for me because I'm so used to interviewing other people, not being the person interviewed. And I really liked being on the, when I was 12 years old, I was watching, you guys are probably too young to remember this, but Barbara Walters used to have specials on and I was watching a Barbara Walters special and I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I didn't want to be the star sitting in the hot seat. I wanted to be the one interviewing the people because I was always so curious about people and what was going on with them and why they did what they did. Um, so it was weird for me to be in that role um, of, of being the story. It's never what any journalist wants. We don't want to be the story, but I do think there's a greater and bigger purpose in it, which is why I did it. And I didn't know what to expect in terms of um, reaction to that story. With social media, 
I thought, man, I'm going to get ripped to shreds. People are going to say what a horrible mother I was. My daughter was a junkie and she deserved to die, which has, which people have said to another mom that I had interviewed a year earlier whose daughter died of an overdose. And I've seen it. And so I was really expecting, I was just like bracing myself like, okay, I can do this. I'm used to criticism and people always want to kill the messenger Mm -hmm. when it comes to journalism. They don't like the story. Oh, it's your opinion when even it's not, you know, people are a little crazed now on social media. But anyway, so I was prepared. And actually, I would say about 98% of the um, comments were all positive. And I felt so much support and love. And you were talking at the beginning of this podcast about this community And that is what I always say it's love shows up. And so that is really what happened in my life and with this charity is just love showed up. And people kept going, can I help? Well, how about if we do this? I'd like to do this. And I was like, okay. And it just sort of snowballed and took off. And the community really did rally behind me and the organization and everybody in it um, with Emily's Hope. And so we went on and started our own nonprofit. And now we're doing lots of things. We're helping people through, through treatment, but we're doing other things as well. Love showed up. Love showed up. That's what we'll call this episode. I, I like it. Angela, um, so I think you're part of the story that's happening here in Sioux Falls, statewide, national level, international level. I don't think we're there yet, um, but I think we're moving towards the direction of people understanding that addiction is tied to mental health and that mental health is a real thing. And I think a lot of people, especially in these parts, don't want to point to it. They don't want to say that mental health is a real thing. That's a made-up disease. What can we do in this community other than what you're doing? Support Emily's Hope. Continue to seek out education. What can we do? What can Mandate do? Uh, What can we as a community do to further that story? Well, you're right. Addiction and mental health go hand in hand. And addiction is a disease of the brain. It's not a character flaw or a moral failing. It simply isn't. If you look at the science behind it, uh, it's it's pretty easy to understand. And doctors have known this since like the 60s, you know, or 50s or 60s, that addiction is a disease of the brain. Now, the first couple of times that you choose to use is a choice. Mm -hmm. But everybody I've talked to, every addict I've talked to says, hey, the second time I smoked marijuana or I took a drink or I did this or that, I knew I'd found my answer, that this was it for me. It's the answer I've been looking for my whole life. And I found it. And they just went off the rails from there, right? I mean, to a full-blown addiction. So something happens, you know, within the body. And I think also people are self-medicating anxiety, depression, and other mental illnesses. And for sure, my daughter suffered from some anxiety um, and was not very forthcoming about it always. But yes, for sure she did. And so many kids today do, you know, but what can our community do? So I think what we can do is to, the one thing I don't like about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think it has lots of great, great parts of it. In fact, my grandfather founded AA in Southwest Minnesota back in like 1950 when nobody is the anonymous part. Mm. And now, okay, if people want to be anonymous, I mean, I respect people's privacy to their medical, you know, to their medical conditions, but we have to start talking about it. And that is the one thing that my podcast has enabled a lot of people, a lot of mothers and parents to talk about it. uh, Because 
there aren't very many outlets and not everybody wants to hear, but I think the more we talk about it and normalize it, the more likely we are going to move to that. And we also need, we need real changes in how these things are covered by insurance, how addiction treatment is covered by right. insurance. I mean, we, we've gotten there somewhat with mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but not with addiction. Anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves an addiction treatment center and that's really scary to me. Mm-hmm. So I want to see I want to see addiction screened along with mental health by your doctor, by your I mean I took Emily Emily was picking at her face before she died. And I said, oh, are you doing meth? And she was like, I would never do meth. And I was like, okay. And I took her to, let's go to a dermatologist. I took her to a dermatologist. The dermatologist gave her a cream and Lexapro and sent us out, which is an antidepressant, yep. and sent us out the door and never once screened her for drugs. That We need more training for our medical professionals. They get like maybe doctors, maybe get like one day, you know, in all of medical school to learn about addiction. Mm. And granted, like 10% of the population will be addicted. But I believe the numbers are probably even a little bit higher than that. And so I think we need to do a better job of, of, of treating it within our medical systems, spotting it, screening for it, and treating it. Are you aware of the stats in Sioux Falls as of recently in terms of overdose how, stats? Yeah, yeah, or even just w- what is the drug culture in Sioux Falls? Well, meth is a very popular drug in Sioux Falls, and meth overdoses are actually on the rise believe there were seven. Now, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I did get them recently because we cel- we didn't celebrate. We marked International Overdose Awareness Day on August 31st. We had families out there and we lit up the arc purple and we had speakers and the new police chief came and spoke and we had a singer and it was actually really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just did get some of these numbers. 120 people in the state have died of overdose since January of 2020 through May of 2021. And um, a lot of those were in the Minnehaha County area. In the Minnehaha County, there were seven meth overdoses in all of 2020 and already nine in the first four months of 2021. Or maybe it's nine and seven. But anyway, it, it's, it's higher, mm-hmm. almost as high or as high as the whole year or the previous year. So um, it's definitely happening here. We, we did a, a story following a national report that South Dakota was one of two states where overdose numbers didn't go up. But that doesn't mean we're not having overdoses. Right. And also, they're not always getting it reported. So I don't know if we have a real good handle on the number. But So what are the ways that you're uh, moving towards this educational piece about this problem with Emily's Hope and, and the work that you're doing through that organization? So while we want to help people get through treatment and stay in recovery, and we're doing that with our Emily's Hope Treatment Scholarships, and we support Sober Living, we also have a really big educational component in our nonprofit. And we have a committee, the Emily's Hope Curriculum Committee, where we are coming up with prevention curriculum. We want to stop this problem before it starts in our kids. And we believe that we need to start younger at a younger age with age appropriate lessons about drugs, what they are, how they affect the brain. We want to encompass the whole child, talk about trauma and feelings and things like that. And we want to start at the elementary school level. And we have a plan to pilot it in a South Dakota school next fall. So in the fall of 2022. That's exciting. And I think probably a lot of our listeners are the D.A.R.E. generation. Yeah. Listeners, I remember that as a sixth grader. 
fifth fifth and sixth grade, the police officer would show up and there was this case. I remember very vividly the, the case and he opens the case and all the drugs are in the case mm-hmm. and it's like really Shock scary. Yeah, it was scary. really scary. Do you think it stopped anybody from doing drugs? I have no idea, Maybe. but it made Maybe. me, it, it did make right. me scared. Like if that was the, if that was the objective, I, I did leave that session with my green dare pencil scared about what I just heard, you know? That's not what, this is different than that. I think the intentions behind D.A.R.E. were very, very good. And I think it's great that police officers got involved. Uh, But what we want to do is we want to have really age-appropriate lessons, whether that be a science lesson, a health lesson, a social studies lesson about peer pressure, to really integrate it in year-long curriculum where kids can understand it. Because I think that if kids can understand Kids are pretty self-protective, right? They don't want to screw up their own brains. And so if we get that message to them earlier, uh, I think it would be, and just talking about, you know, talking to a trusted adult when you have problems and, and things like that, we really think that we can prevent a good number of kids from starting to use in the first place. Because once they start to use, if they have the genes and environmental factors and all those things I talked about, that is a long, tough road. I mean, I was on a long, tough road with my daughter. And, you know, you can go through, well, I've talked to people who have gone through treatment, you know, a dozen times. And it's hard. It's hard. Really, really hard. So we want to make the biggest difference I think we can is in prevention. When you, maybe this question is too specific right now, but who do you imagine delivering the curriculum? Would it, would it be with the teachers or? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, help train teachers and enlist the teacher's help, and we're also going to provide resources and speakers and plays and, you know, digital content and things like that for them. So I I assume that we're wrapping up here, Joe. Um, Andrew, there are people in this community, in this state, in this globe that were in the exact same space you were uh, when you kind of changed your tone with Emily. Uh, there was a moment in time where the hard, tough love wasn't going to work anymore, and and then you seem to be a loving, caring mom. These people, uh, or this person, there are people in our community that have a friend, that have a daughter, have a son, have a grandson, granddaughter that is right there. They've done the tough love. Thing. That's where my brain goes to that first, like tough love. You, I need to get it's you so through that. So hard to do too. The tough love. I hated it. Right. Of course I hated you did. doing those things. It was awful. But I just thought, I have to do the right thing. I have to do the right thing. Yes. So if someone is in that right now, they in their mind, they know who that person is. It's They're in their life. What would you say to that person? Well, I would say keep reaching out and keep saying there's a better way. You know, keep letting that person know that there's a better way. You can't force another person to do anything. We only have really agency over ourselves, right? I mean, you, and some people don't even have that. So we don't, you know, other people are not our puppets, even our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, nephews, right? We can just keep offering um, with love, you know, with love, hey, I love you, I care about you, there's a better way than what you're doing right now. And when you're ready to hear that, because the person, and I learned this from somebody who's gone through pretty extensive treatment and recovery, he said the other person's not always ready to hear, you know, and and so there are there's no 
compact, easy answer Mm -hmm. to your question. And I often say, because I have parents contact me all the time that say, oh, my son, my daughter, what can I do? And if I had all the answers, my daughter would still be alive. Mm. I don't have all the answers. And I don't think we can save everybody. But I do think we can save more people just by talking about it, reducing the stigma through education and through approaching it in the right way and through having better treatment, offering more treatment, making it affordable, and those kinds of things. So uh, the one thing I want to point out, Angela, and I'm going to let you talk about where people can find you, but where this whole thing came from was a colleague of mine said, hey, you have to read this blog. Uh, And we were just talking about having a vulnerable conversation. So you're on this because I was crying, literally reading your story as a brokenhearted mom. And then you had additional stories on top of that. Uh, And so... I want to shout out your blog. I mean, Emily's Hope, it's just your ability to be vulnerable, which is what Mandate's all about. It's all about having vulnerable conversations, meaningful conversations. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. People who are listening, go check out Angela's personal blog because it's, it's a microscope into a heart that you probably don't want to deal with but, I, but it's going to open up your heart to be more loving and more encouraging and more present for people in your life. Well, I think after a tragedy, you do have, like when I was talking about choice, you, you, I'm trying to remain open-hearted. That's hard to do because mm. it's hard for all of us to do because the world is a really hard place. And my blog is, I just kind of open up my heart and it pours onto the paper. And I don't know if that's good or bad. And it's not really my job to know or care what people think, right? right, right. So they could judge me for it. Uh, that's their, that's about them. That's not about me. I hope that I'm helping other parents and especially other moms and people who've, especially people who've been through loss to know they're not alone and maybe to figure out ways to cope with it a little. I just talk about how I feel and how I cope and the things that happen and the things that remind me of her. It, it's remarkable. I, I can, I can vouch, Andrea, you, you are helping Thanks. people. Thank uh, you. I have a, seven-year-old and I've parented her different because of reading your blog so you're affecting people's lives you're very very important you you can't stop and whatever we can do mandate and the the little sphere of influence we have uh, we want to be a part of it I appreciate that and thank you for reading it it always makes a writer feel good to yeah (laughs) that's right people are reading it so So, Angela where can people find you so Emily's hope dot foundation we aren't a .org or a .charity. We're a .foundation. If you just Google Emily's Hope, you can find Emily's Hope on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find Angela Kennecke on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you find me, you can find Emily's Hope, and you can find my blog and my podcast, Grieving Out Loud. Also, Grieving Out Loud is available anywhere you get your podcasts. And, and I deal with grief and addiction and all of those things. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for for being with us today. I, I am very grateful for your courage and just uh, willingness to step out there with this story and share it. Uh, I was really affected by your story about doing this, doing your story on opioids in the first place when you went back to Kello and, and understanding that there are people are going to react differently to this. And, and you said you were bracing for that reaction. And, and uh, the point of that story was that you did it anyway. And it's a display of courage and it's an encouragement toward courage in having these kinds of conversations. And so I'm grateful for you to you for that. 
And uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Ben, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to Mandate, how do they do that? Yeah, so you can, uh, first of all, most importantly, uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, That's Mandate Pod. Look for the orange sticker. Uh, We also are on any podcast platform. Uh, Push play, like, subscribe. Tell us how you feel. Uh, And the best way and the most immediate reaction is from Gmail. So mandate.pod at gmail.com. Uh, and if uh, you need help getting in touch with Angela, uh, we can help with that. So find us Instagram, Twitter, uh, and uh, wherever you find your podcast. Hey, listen, if there was anything about this episode that was impactful to you or you know somebody who would benefit from listening to this, would you share it? That would be awesome. We'll see you next time on Mandate.